0: Father in heaven, your word says that you are the author and perfecter and finisher of our faith, that the work that you have begun in us, you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we ask that as we turn our attention to your word this morning, that you would continue this work in us, that you would help us to see, behold, and uh admire and just be moved by the profundity of your word and the gospel of Jesus Christ this morning. Father, that your word would be a light to our path and a lamp to our feet this morning. Instruct us, teach us, correct us, rebuke us, encourage us, build us up for the glory of your name we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles to uh, the gospel of John chapter three, the gospel of John chapter three. Uh, And as you uh, turn there, uh, I was thinking this week of the first time that I visited downtown Toronto. And uh, maybe you remember the first time you visited downtown Toronto. My first time visiting downtown Toronto was looking back a very embarrassing visit, And it was very embarrassing because you could tell I was a tourist in Toronto. I didn't grow up in the GTA or around high rises or or big buildings. So the uh, big part of my time in downtown Toronto was spent like this, right? A lot of you, you work downtown, perhaps you've lived downtown, you've been downtown for restaurants and stuff. You know when a tourist is down there because they're looking up a lot. They're looking at the high rises. And I remember being mesmerized by these buildings, but if you've worked downtown, if you've lived downtown, if you've been downtown a couple of times, you're not looking at the buildings anymore. It's familiar. It's been uh, been there, done that uh, time. In fact, a, a quote has been uh, often attributed to these kind of experiences that familiarity breeds contempt or familiarity breeds indifference, right? It's, it's true with a lot of things in life. That's why Hella skiers constantly need to be hitting higher jumps because once you've hit this jump, it's not as exciting. you got to hit the next one. It's why travelers consistently want to travel to new places because the places they've been aren't as exciting. If there's any students in the room, this is why kindergarten is so exciting and grade 8 is very lackluster. Perhaps even for us, it's why we change jobs or careers that... The company we're with, we've been with for many years, and it's all too familiar, and that newness has wore off, and it's now boring. It's ordinary. It doesn't excite us. This morning, we're turning our attention to God's word in the gospel of John chapter three, verses 16 to 21, arguably the most familiar passage in all of the Bible, That if you've grown up in the church, you've heard this passage. Perhaps you've never stepped foot in a church, and this morning is the very first time that you've stepped foot in a church. You have probably heard this passage. Maybe you've been reading the Bible for decades, and you're so familiar with this passage, and maybe you've never even cracked the book once, and you likely know this passage. You've seen it on the highways as you've been driving on the billboards. You've seen it at the sports games on the signs that have been held up. You've seen it on Christmas cards. You've seen it on bumper stickers. Maybe you've even seen people get it tattooed. And yet this morning, we are turning to a very familiar passage, but a very profound one. Would we not turn there with indifference? Would we not look to God's word and check out, but would we take up again the ABCs of the gospel? Would we again be moved by the profound truth that is in these very few verses? Would we not leave here unmoved? Would we not leave here un-in-awe of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Would we not leave here unstirred? So John chapter 3, we see at the beginning that nightfall has fallen upon the day, and There's a man that sneaks off into the dark to meet with Jesus, to ask him a question. And this man likely has snuck off into the dark because he doesn't want to be seen. He wants to have some private time with Jesus. But this man isn't just any man. It's a teacher of Israel, arguably one of the highest teachers in all of Israel, a man named Nicodemus, a Pharisee of Pharisees. And as he comes to Jesus at night, he has a question, a question he wants to ask Jesus, a question that likely weighed on his heart, weighed on his mind, and he wanted an answer for, a question that if you haven't asked this question, you probably should be asking this question, a question that this man should have known the answer to. And the question is, how can a person enter the kingdom of heaven? How can a person be saved? And Nicodemus, in the time of him coming to Jesus, understood that uh, he saw that works and effort were an important part in his relationship with God. And as he sees with Jesus that our works and our effort have nothing to do with us being saved. And Jesus' instruction in words to Nicodemus about being saved and being able to enter the kingdom of heaven are just as shocking to him as they are to our society today. Because we live in a, a society, a time in which self-fulfillment, self-determination, personal abilities to make decisions, that we value autonomy so, so much. We wanna be who we want to be. We want to be able to do what we want to do, and we certainly want to be able to choose and make decisions of our own accord. And yet, the teaching of John chapter 3 that Jesus teaches about how a person can be saved is that this is a divine work. This is a work that no man can do of himself. And we're going to pick up our passage at verse 1 in chapter 3, and we're going to read all the way down to. To 21, but we're going to specifically be looking at verses 16 to 21. But it's important to know what happens before this passage because what happens before this passage has a lot of weight on what follows in this passage. So let's read it together. John chapter 3, verses 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This is the word of the Lord. This morning, we're turning our attention to verses 16 to 21. And we see a tension in this chapter. We, We see a tension in scripture that salvation isn't a work of man, but it is a divine work of the spirit of God. And as Jesus is saying this in chapter three to Nicodemus in this conversation, he describes the spirit of God as the wind that the wind goes where it wishes. You don't know where it comes from, you don't know where it goes, but it does what it wants to do and so it is with the Spirit of God. Unless you are born of the Spirit, you cannot see and enter the kingdom of heaven. But there's also another tension we see in this passage. We see a tension and a call to believe, which we see in verses 16 to 21. Believe, believe, believe. That John chapter 3 Jesus is teaching that faith is God's gift. God is the one who works salvation in a person's life. But we also see that unbelief is our choice. It's my choice. And Nicodemus is wrestling with this and he's asking, how can this be? And verses 16 to 21 are a commentary on a conversation that just happened with Nicodemus. It is a commentary. It is an explanation. And perhaps you're reading from a red letter Bible and verses 16 to 21 are highlighted in red. I don't actually believe that Jesus said these words. And there's a number of reasons why I don't think Jesus said these words. Uh, There's a number of commentators that also don't think Jesus said these words. And if you wanna know those reasons, I'd be happy to talk to you after. But for the sake of time, I'm not going to get into that. But needless to say, it is still God's word. Just because Jesus may have not said it doesn't mean that it's not equally as important. In fact, it's important to know that the writer of this gospel, John, writes these verses as a commentary and an explanation on what just happened. If faith is God's gift and unbelief is my choice, how can this be? Well, John begins to unpack that in his comments. And what we see firstly is in verse 16. How can this be? How can this be that faith is God's gift? It's a work of God, yet unbelief is my choice? Well, look, verse 16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. The first thing that John wants to draw draw out is recognize the reason of salvation. You want to see the source of salvation. You want to see the reason, the motivation for salvation. It isn't with man. It isn't man's loveliness. It isn't man's deserving of it. It is with God and his love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. It is God who initiates this salvation. It is God that brings this plan of salvation into action. And the the reason of salvation is his love. He loves the world. In fact, there is so much emphasis in these words that we, can, we, we know it so well, we're so familiar with it that we miss the power and the emphasis and the urgency in these words. It doesn't say God loved the world. It says, for God so loved the world, that little word so. To think upon that word, to meditate upon that word, we could not exhaust the meaning of that word so. And we're going to see three things of this love that makes this love so amazing. The first is that this love is an unearned love. This is an unearned love. What makes this love so amazing is not because the world is so big, not because the world is so great, not because the world is filled with so many people, but what makes this love so amazing, we see in verse 16, for God so loved the world is because the world is so evil. The world is so evil and so bad. This is an unearned love. The world did not deserve the love of God. The world deserved the very opposite. In fact, we read throughout the scriptures that humanity, no one, not a single soul, is deserving of the love of God and the goodness of God, but they are deserving of the very opposite that God would be good and just to rain down fire upon this planet filled with his rebellious creatures. That would be good and just for God. But here we see that God loves this world. He loves this world. This is not to say that God's love doesn't have limits. This isn't to say that God's love motivates him to save all people of every race and every tongue. That is not to say that God's love Uh, promotes universalism, that he loves the world so much that he is going to redeem every single person. There are limits and parameters to God's love, but this is nonetheless amazing that God loves the world. This is an unearned love. Do you recognize it? Do you see it? But it isn't just an unearned love. It is a sacrificial love. So we see that for God so loved the world, but look at the next phrase, that he gave his only son. He gave his only son. This is a sacrificial love. The father gave his best. He gave his unique. He gave his only. There was no other one the father could have given that was so close and so unique. And again, in this very little phrase, the emphasis on the nature of this gift that he gave his only son. Some translations translate it as his one and his only son, bringing attention to this gift, his son. There's only one other passage that I know of in the Bible that uses this similar language, this similar phrasing. And it's found in Genesis chapter 22. If you're familiar with Genesis chapter 22, it is a chapter in which God wants to test Abraham. He wants to really see what Abraham's faith and love is made of. He wants to really see, does Abraham really love me? Does he really fear me above all else? And the test that God gives Abraham is, Abraham, take your one and your only son, Isaac, and bring him to Mount Moriah and sacrifice him. And we see in the story that Abraham, he goes and he is about to drop the knife into his son and God says, Abraham, Abraham, stop. I see that you love me. I see that you fear God as the supreme proof of Abraham's love for God was his willingness to sacrifice his son. We see in these verses, the supreme proof of God's love for the world is his willingness to sacrifice his son. The difference, God actually does it, that he sheds his son's Blood. The Bible says, without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sins. This was a sacrificial love. It was an unearned love, it was an, a sacrificial love, but we also see a third thing. That it was a transformative love. Look again at verse 16: that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. This was A love with a purpose. This was a love to take dead people and redeem them and make them alive, to take those that are perishing and give them eternal hope and eternal life. That God had a purpose and a plan in His His love for the world. We see this throughout Scripture that God is not a God who delights in destroying the wicked, but He longs for sinners to come to repentance. He longs for sinners to no longer be perishing but be made alive. We see this in Ezekiel 18 when God finds the people's actions detestable and wicked and we hear God crying out and he says, do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked? Declares the sovereign Lord. Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? Apart from the love of God, there would be no hope for us. Apart from God's charitable love towards us sinners, there would be no hope. We aren't deserving of this love. We're deserving of his wrath. And yet we see the reason for salvation. How is faith a defined work? How is faith a gift and unbelief a choice? Well, recognize God's love. Recognize the reason of salvation. But we see a second thing. We don't just see that we are to recognize the reason for salvation. John wants to go in deeper and explain the plan of salvation. In verse 17, he wants us to realize God's plan of salvation, that God's love, this reason, this motive, this source of salvation. Well, what is the plan? Verse 17 tells us this plan. It says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. Realize God's plan of salvation. We see that God's love motivates him to redeem sinners. Now we see the way in which he does that. The simple point of John 3.17 is that Jesus didn't primarily come to the earth to make blind people see. He didn't primarily come to the earth to heal sick people. He didn't come to the earth to get rid of leprosy. He didn't come to the earth to turn water into wine. Jesus came to redeem sinners, to save those that are perishing. In fact, we see this again throughout the New Testament. There are many places in which Jesus speaks of his main mission, of why he came. Here are a couple. Jesus says, I did not come into the world to condemn the world, but to save it. Jesus says that the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. Jesus says, it is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have come to call, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus came to redeem Sinners and the plan of salvation, the providential plan of salvation, was God sending His one and His only Son not to condemn sinners, but to provide one way to redeem them. This is important we realize God's plan. This is important we recognize that there is one way, a single way, there's no other way, because many of us live. And no friends and family that wrestle with this fact that if God is loving, he would provide many ways in which people would be saved. There are people that read this passage and they conclude that God loves the world, so he is going to redeem and save every single person. That if God really loved the world, he would let anyone and anything that they're practicing for religion, that they would be redeemed with God and we question God's love. In fact, even in churches in North America, we see the temptation to soft pedal the gospel, perhaps even us in our uh, witnessing to others. And we recognize that the gospel is offensive in those moments. And we wrestle with how to say this in a non-blunt and hard way when the reality is there is one way. Jesus taught it. Scripture teaches it. Scripture affirms it. There is a single way. And the question we wrestle with is if God really loved the world, why would he only give one way when really we should just be in awe of the fact that God would provide a single way of salvation at all? Do we realize God's plan? Faith is a divine work. It's a gift of God. And unbelief is my choice. Well, how can this be? We need to see that God is the source of salvation. God is the reason of salvation in his love. We need to realize God's plan and see that it was God in his providence that worked out this plan of redemption, not us. God, a single way. But we also see one last thing in this chapter. We see one last thing, one last instruction in this chapter. If faith's God's gift and unbelief is my choice, how can this be? The last thing we see in this passage is that we are to respond to the call of salvation. We are to respond to the call of salvation. Let me read verses 18 to 21 again for us. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. in the gospel of John, that there are many places in which John clearly teaches that salvation is a divine work of God alone. And yet throughout the gospel of John, a word consistently comes up, believe, believe, believe. Seldom can you read through a chapter in the gospel of John and not see John's editorial marks calling people to believe. In fact, in John chapter 20, John writes, I have written this so that you may believe in Jesus Christ and have life in his name. The purpose of the gospel of John is so that you would believe in Jesus Christ. Believe, believe, believe. We have kind of a wrestle. You're probably wrestling through this right now. Okay, if God God is the one who works salvation, we have a, a responsibility to to respond to this, to believe, that if I choose not to believe, I'm held accountable for that decision, even though God's the one who works salvation? Yes, this is the tension of Scripture, that faith is a miraculous work of God, and yet that does not relieve you of your responsibility. It does not negate the responsibility that you have as an individual to believe in Jesus Christ, That on the day of judgment, you will be held accountable whether you have believed or not. I love what Charles Spurgeon says about this tension. He says, I don't have to reconcile God's sovereignty and human responsibility. I don't have to reconcile, friends. This is the tension that scripture teaches. It is a mystery to us, but it teaches both. It teaches that there is a response to be had. In fact, if you are in this room and you have not believed in Jesus Christ, we see that you are in fact condemned. And on judgment day, you will not be seen as righteous because you have not believed in Jesus Christ, but because of your works, because of your heart being a heart filled with unbelief, you will be held accountable and will be judged. And we need to ask ourselves then, what is true faith? What is belief? What does it mean to believe in Jesus Christ? John talks about this so much throughout his gospel. He's using this word so much throughout this passage. What does it mean to believe? Well, throughout church history, there uh, has been understood that there's three aspects, three unique aspects of faith. In fact, if one of these three is lacking, you do not have saving faith. Three aspects of saving faith. The first aspect is knowledge. The first aspect of saving faith is knowledge. You have to know the message of the gospel. If you don't know it, how can you believe it, right? There is an intellectual aspect to the faith that you understand the foundational tenets, the foundational beliefs. You know them. You know them. And then there's a second aspect. The second aspect is you you don't just need to know the fundamental aspects of the faith. You have to believe that they're true. You have to believe that they're true. There are many people in our world today that know the uh, fundamental facts of the gospel, yet they don't believe it to be true. You have to believe that it is true. You don't just need to know the message You don't just need to know that Jesus Christ has come into the world as God's son. You don't just need to know that men, man and woman, every single person is utterly sinful and under the wrath of God, apart from God. You don't just need to know that Jesus Christ was hung on the cross and crucified for your sins and that Jesus Christ has been resurrected. You just don't need to know these things. You need to also believe that they're true. But then there's a third aspect. And this third aspect, perhaps there are people in this room that they know the gospel, they believe that it's true, and yet this aspect of faith is missing. The third aspect is trust. You act in trust in this saving work of Jesus Christ. In fact, if you do not have this aspect, you have the faith equivalent to the devil and his demons. The devil and the demons, they know the fundamental facts of the gospel. They believe that it's true. They know that it's true. But they do not trust in the saving work of Jesus Christ. They do not have a personal trust in Jesus Christ. And if you have not trusted in Jesus Christ for your salvation, it doesn't matter how many Sundays you attend. It doesn't matter how many services you you attend. It doesn't matter the attendance that you have in small group. It doesn't matter the effort uh, and effort and works upon works that you have done within the local body of the church. If you have not trusted in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, you are not saved. Believe. Trust in Christ. Respond. Perhaps you're in here like, I have believed. Well, what an opportunity for us to be reminded of the opportunity and responsibility to go and share this message. This is why Jesus tells us to go and make disciples of all the nations, to to go and share this message because our job isn't to save individuals. Our job is to be messengers of this message and God is going to do that work. But why do some people not believe. Perhaps there's someone in this room right now and they're wrestling. I don't want to believe this. Or maybe they know it, maybe they even think it's true, but they don't want to trust in Christ. Or maybe you have a family member or a friend or a coworker and you've shared the gospel with them and they don't want to trust in Christ. And we're wrestling with that. Why do some people not believe in, in Christ? And yet sometimes we maybe have witness to someone and they come to saving faith. And it is, is wonderful and it's, it's a miracle of the Lord. And why do some believe and some not? John, he answers this question. He says in verse 19, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness The light has come. Jesus Christ has come. But the world did not want this light. Sinners did not want this light. They did not want to come to this light. They did not want to be exposed by this light. They did not want to embrace this light. And because they refused to come to the light and be exposed, they are under God's judgment. And they are under God's condemnation. And we see... We see why people don't believe. We see that people love the darkness. This is why they don't believe. They loved the darkness. We see a second thing, that their works were evil. And we see that they hate the light, and they don't want to be exposed by this light. But then verse 21, it says, but whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God for the one who has come to the light where his works have been exposed and does what is true and it is clearly seen that his works are carried out but notice those two little last words so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God those people that have come to faith in Jesus Christ, those people that have believed in Jesus Christ, that work is clearly seen. And we see that that work was not carried out in human effort. We see that work was not carried out in our own strength. We see that work was not carried out in our own wisdom, in our own cunning. We see that work was carried out in God. In fact, if we were to Word study those words and look at the language of those words that has the connotation of in God's power. God working in our hearts, bringing us to salvation is a work of God. Have we believed? Have you believed? The calling of this passage this morning is believe. And if you have not believed in Jesus Christ, if you have not known the truth that he has come, he has died, he has risen again for your sins, believe that, know it. Know that it's true and trust in his finished work on the cross. There is uh, an interesting thing that Jesus actually says before verse 16. Maybe Maybe you saw it, maybe you caught it as we were reading it. It says in verse 14 and 15 he says and as moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life but jesus as he's talking about this miraculous work of being born again he he brings up a situation from numbers chapter 21 And he says that just as Moses lifted up the serpent, so the son of man must be lifted up, referring to the cross of Christ, his crucifixion. We need to ask, well, what what is Jesus talking about here? And if you look back to Numbers chapter 21, what happens in Numbers chapter 21 is that the people of Israel, they sin. They sin against God and they sin against Moses. They have accused God of abandoning him They grumble against him, and God, in his just just judgment, sends fiery serpents upon these people, and these fiery serpents begin to bite all of the Israelites, and it wasn't just the bite that was fatal. It was the venom that these snakes injected into these people, that these people were all going to die. There was a 100% fatality rate of those that were bitten by the snakes. And these people recognize and realize what they had done and they go to Moses and they say, we repent. We recognize that what we have done was wrong, was sinful. And we see that God in his grace says to Moses, make a bronze serpent and hold it up. Set it up. And as those people simply look, look to that serpent, they will be healed. That there was a 100% fatality rate and there was a 100% cure rate for those that looked and lived to this serpent. And yet what the passage teaches us and alludes to is that there were many that died. There were many that perished when there was a cure of 100%. In their hardness of hearts, they refused. In the agonies of death, they refused to look and to live. And Jesus uses this incident to describe his cross, his crucifixion. That just as Moses held up that serpent and people could look and live, the son of man is going to be held up and they need to look and live that God does the curing, but you have to look, you have to live, you have to believe. Have you believed? Have you believed? God's word is calling you to believe this morning. God's word is encouraging you to remember that it is the gospel that does the work in people's lives. It is the gospel that saves people, not us that there is a tension, that faith is God's gift. It is a miraculous work of God, and yet unbelief is my choice, and you will be held accountable. This is how it can be. And as we close, I want to encourage you. If you have not believed in Jesus Christ or perhaps you think you've believed, you've known it, you've believed it, but you haven't trusted in Christ alone, today is the day of salvation. Look to Jesus Christ and live. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are in awe of your love. What a what a thing to think, Lord, that you would love such an evil world, that you would love such sinners. Lord, I think of what the apostle Paul says in Corinthians, that this is an inexpressible gift, that words can't even begin to describe the love that you have for sinners. And Lord, we ask this morning that you would refresh us in these truths of your love of your plan of salvation and Lord that you would remind us if we have believed in in Christ and are saved that we would we would take seriously the command to to go and to share this message to go and to, to be messengers of the gospel and Lord I also pray for the one in this room who has not trusted in Christ alone for salvation They have not believed. Lord, I pray that you would convict them of their sins, that you would help them see the judgment that is coming, the condemnation that is coming apart from Christ if they have not believed. And Lord, that they would look to Jesus Christ and that they would live. They would look to Christ and have their sins forgiven. That they would look and no longer be perishing but have eternal life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.